I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of the Appendix N Book Club. This episode is about Jack Vance's The Killing Machine. And with me today, I have that faceless hormigant hoy. A man of many, many facets. <laughs> and today we have the Any Award-winning DM of the Feats and Fables Twitch channel and writer for D&D Adventures League, Paige Lightman. Paige, thanks for joining us today. Hello! Happy to have I'm you so on the show, Paige. That's awesome. Yes, I appreciate right. the invitation. <laughs> so, Paige, we're going to go ahead and ask you that cliche RPG podcast question. How did you get into gaming? Okay, so I was born in 1971. In fact, it's funny that this is show 89. I graduated from high school in 1989. Um, uh, and I was always the kid that liked monster books. I was the weird kid. Like, I, I claim it. That's me. And uh, I saw this box in the bookstore because for our younger listeners, there also actually used to be physical edifices full of books where we would go. And that was fun. That was, that was fun. When we could leave the house. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is back before. Yes. And I went to this edifice of books with my mother because it was a treat for me. And I saw this box that had monsters on it. And I'm like, mom, I want the box. It's got monsters. She says, sure, fine, whatever. So we get the box home and I'm extremely confused. It is not a story about monsters. It is not, it is, it is not a, a, a story at all. It's this game. And I'm like, well, that wasn't what I expected. But I, I started <laughs> reading it. And I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know. It seems all right. And this is probably 83, maybe. Amazing. And uh, so I'm like, all right, so this is a game. I'm, I'm going to play this game. It's going to be fine. I'm going to play this game. Nobody would play this game with me uh, because my girlfriends wanted to play Barbies. And like, it was just not a thing. So I bullied my brother, who is two years younger than me. And his stinky little friends into being my D&D players. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, like I said, in 83 or 84, my brother and I are still friends and he still plays D&D, sometimes even with me. Amazing. Now, I see from, um, from when I just kind of Google your name, it comes up that um, fifth edition is your favorite edition of D&D. And one of my favorite jokes about fifth edition is that fifth edition is everybody's second favorite version of D&D, but it is your favorite version of D&D. So I would love to know what about fifth edition makes it your favorite. One simple thing. I can get somebody up and playing fifth edition D&D in 20 minutes. Perfect. I've never been able to do that before. I never like been it. able to do that before. Having said that, it's kind of a tie between fourth and second for my second favorite version of D&D. I am a math person. Okay. Uh, I am, I'm actually a marine biologist. I clean up hazardous waste sites. My job is to draw the line between the clean part and the dirty part on the site using models, mathematical and chemical models. And so as a math-centered person, fourth edition is so beautiful. Like, mm. it's this perfect crystalline, perfectly interlocking series of equations that that work. They, they mm -hmm. just work. They play tested the fire out of it and it Absolutely. works. Absolutely. It's very, very balanced. Yes. 
did this math attraction lead you to any of the other games uh, during your gaming career that are, you know, lean in that direction, whether it be Pathfinder or GURPS it, or sure, anything else like, like that? Like I played, I played three, five real hard. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I had in the end of living Greyhawk, a 20th level archer character with 15, well, not 15, but literally like six different classes, including prestige classes. And it was very mathematically common, mm-hmm. uh, but somewhere around the second or third maybe third or fourth edition of Shadowrun, I finally said, like, I can play these complicated games, but, like, I'm not here for the math. The math yeah. is just a tool to play the game. Right, right. And if I can play the game without going through all these extra steps, which means mm-hmm. I can play it with a lot more people, yeah. uh, then, then I like that better. Right, right. So so Shadowrun is another one. So what other games did, um, or is it really just D&D with occasional side trips and day trips to other oh, games? Oh, no. Like, yeah. So I, in high school, we built our own science fiction role-playing game that was called Lightyear. Cool. Shout out to Jim and Stacy and the gang. Awesome. Uh, uh, you know, I've played uh, everything. Mm. At least once. Will there be a Lightyear Second Edition Kickstarter coming out soon? I I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wasn't the author. I just tell like this is all World of Darkness behind that, me yeah. nice. on the shelf. So yep, yep, right, awesome. Right. Now, when you were gaming back then, um, were you, were you, were you doing like AD and D as well? Mm-hmm. Did that yeah. okay? So now, started started with the red box and then rapidly graduated okay. to to the books. Okay. And when you had the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, was the Appendix N in the back of the book something you really paid any attention to? It's where I discovered... So, as the weird kid, I'd always been a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, here's the list of books you need to read to do this even better. Like, I literally took it to the librarian and said, <laughs> Let, let's start with A. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and I read like Fritz Lieber and H.P. Lovecraft and um, I, I read Jack Vance, Dying Earth. I read Michael Moorcock, read all of Michael Moorcock. And that's a lot of books. Yeah. Of of the books that you discovered through that process, was there a specific author or a specific series or a specific book that like really grabbed you? Oh, I mean, lots of them. Yeah. Like lots of them. Like how like. Lovecraft blew my mind. Like, I'd always been, like, fantasy. I got that. Like, kind of, it went from, like, mythology, which they taught us as a safe subject for middle school kids in Knoxville in the late 70s, early 80s. Like, that was okay. You could teach that. Mm -hmm. And then it went from there to fantasy to science fiction. Like, there would be no way I would have ever discovered horror Mm -hmm. if it hadn't been through D&D. And I love horror. I love H.P. Lovecraft. Now, you were playing during that whole era of the Satanic Panic. Yes, oh, sir. my God, yes. Yeah. I can only, th- like, I was fortunate that I am a Jew and I come from a family of Jews. So the whole <laughs> Satan thing, not so much. They were, they were convinced I was absolutely aberrant, though. <laughs> like, abs- <laughs> to this day, to this day, my parents are convinced that I am absolutely aberrant because of my life. <laughs> they, they truly expected 2.5 kids, a dog, and a, and and cookies at PTA bake sales. And that is just not the person I've turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right. So um, today we're chatting about Jack Vance's The Killing Machine. Um, I guess we can maybe start off by talking about which edition of the book that we're working with. So Paige, what what, what version were you reading? Uh the one I found on Amazon Kindle, I don't even really know which one it was. Now I have so, to look. So it's just like the contemporary ebook. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, we're I'm like 
I love books too much to to only keep a few of them. So now I keep all of them right smart here move. on my phone. Smart Very move. smart. Smart move. Hoy, what are you working with? I am working with the 90s trade paperback, which has the first three in the series. Um, and um, yeah, I think I picked this up in like 99 or so, although I had read this back in the day um, and not remembered a single thing. I don't even remember the, what it, from my second reading. And now it's a, the third reading. And Jeff, what do you got? Yeah, and I've got the 1978 Daw Yellow Spine uh, with the Gino D'Achille cover. Um, on it, we've got a bunch of little spacemen. One's wearing a little helmet. And we've got this, like, what looks like a giant, like, robo-dog with tusks. Um, and I guess that's the killing machine. Although in the book, the killing machine is literally just a machine that has a giant axe that cuts people in two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, but, to, me, to me, when I was reading it, it reminded me, like, like... Did Grimtooth do this? Is this Grimtooth's traps? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. And before we go into the library, we're going to take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. In canoe. In canoe. And this is kind of an odd choice, but the reason... Well, I'll get into why I chose it in a second. But um, it shows up on page 46. And during this moment, um, our main character is in disguise. The clerk once again leaned back in his chair... Hey, now, what's this? I require your name, sir. Call me Mr. Inkanu. Uh, so this is a name he uses, but it actually is an actual word, too. And Inkanu means an unknown person or thing. And the reason I was really kind of drawn to it is also in Vampire the Masquerade. I was yep. just about to say. Inkanu is a word that they use. Yeah. Yep. yep, yep. <laughs> uh, well, how, Paige, do you recall what Inkanu are? Uh, it, uh, you know, because I haven't played vampire in a decade. That's fine. They are the ancient vampires who have oh, withdrawn right. from vampire society right. and are the kind Methuselahs. of doing their own little thing. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was, uh, I thought it was cool to see that word. And also I thought it really kind of shows like kind of Jack Vance's interesting use of language that the alias that he chooses is Mr. In Canoe. And when In Canoe is a word, that means an unknown person or thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I commend his command of the English language. He <laughs> definitely <laughs> do, he writes at a challenging level. Like mm-hmm. this is not like young readers will enjoy. No, this is not <laughs> not one of those books. It, right, it right. requires. Uh, yeah, I would right. not have wanted to read this in my early teen years. Right. I wouldn't have gotten it. Yeah, that's totally. probably why I don't remember anything from from reading. I remember enjoying it, but probably why I don't remember any specific details. Um, it does point to me. Well, we're going to the reading hut, so we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we are now in the library, so we can go ahead and talk about what we thought about the book. I already have a little bit of a foreshadow of what Paige <laughs> thinks about the book because she sent me a little email yesterday. Uh, yes. But uh, <laughs> no, and it's it's great. I welcome this. Right. So, um, Paige, what did you think of Jack Vance's The Killing Machine? Jack Vance and his writings are a seminal part of what informed the thinking of the people who wrote D&D and who mm-hmm. are still writing D&D. And it's Gary Gygax's favorite author, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate the mark he has left on the hobby that I love so much. And I salute him for some absolutely fascinating world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, he creates things that were not like anything before and certainly hadn't been like anything since yes like you you don't see the the great interchange of all the kidnapped persons uh as a business anywhere else in in the fantasy world it's a cool idea it's a very Mm -hmm. cool idea 
That said. (laughs) (laughs) That said, it is clunky, cheesy, sexist, and entirely a product of its time. Yeah. Mm. Now, this is not to say just because something's sexist, it is immediately without merit. Like, I played the shit out of Witcher 3. (laughs) Like... Like easily Witcher. Witcher three. Oh, and I'm not really familiar with that. Uh, it's a video game of the year. It had it took me 200 hours to complete okay. the thing, right. um, and it is also deeply sexist. Okay, this is not to say I didn't enjoy it, but you just have to enjoy it with the context of really. Yeah, really? right. right. And, and the sexism is quite evident. I mean, the, the main character has no agency, right? And she's the only female character in the book. Yeah. Um, uh, I believe other than she's the literally the only woman with a name. Right. Other than the mother who, you know, of the kidnapped kids, I think is the only. Um, but um, without being a sophist, what to you is clunky and cheesy? Uh, you know, what do those things terms mean to you, or in, in, especially in the context of this book? So, like, in the beginning, like the the fight they describe in the beginning where he's on the speeder fighting Mr. Windle. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the the way it was described. It it just sounds it just sounds kind of fake. Mm. <laughs> I, 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 it's hard for me to, to to quantify it. Well, there is a lot of artifice in Jack Vance, right? It's, there was like the pew pew, which made him drop the gun, and yeah. like the, yeah. that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I hear you. There's a lot of theatricality in Jack Vance, though. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, and Hoy, what did you think of the Killing Machine? Um, I quite enjoyed it, and it may be for the Vancean things of the language and the world building more so than the characters. I mean, there's no doubt that Alice has very little agency, although she has the most ingenious plan to protect herself from this, you know, evil plot, yeah. right? I'm, um, I'm going to sell myself into... Right. <laughs> set, set this price of $10 billion that no one can afford, you know, and just... But it's a, per- it's a temporary fix, though. Like, I mean, yes, it's smart in the sense that it gets her out of immediate trouble but like she it's gonna end with her being sold into slavery which well doesn't i mean really she, seem i don't like think she smartest. had a comprehension of exactly i mean she just set the highest possible number right that was the and i don't know that she had the comprehension of exactly how ruthless and and uh cocorahekis was and also to be fair she wasn't part of this galactic civilization so maybe she didn't understand how easy it would be for him to get that money together right i mean it wasn't that easy i mean he had to get, no. literally kidnap you know hundreds of people to make this happen the theatricality um I had a hard, you know, we know that Kurth Gerson is, um, I don't want to say thin character, but he's so obsessive that there's, you know, maybe just that one surface light. And he, even he muses about the fact that what am I other than this quest for vengeance, right? You know, if this ever finishes, am I a complete human being in any sense of the word, right? Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's deliberate. Um, I was just going to say, because you mentioned Ankanu, I think I really have to believe that Jack Vance was a reader of uh, Alexander Dumas. And especially, um, you know, uh, the man in the iron mask um, and all those revenge tales like that. So that that's sort of a little bit of joke on that. Mm, um, OK. You know, um, so is that was, a, a name or a word that's used in the man? Uh, in the no, iron but just mask? because it's, you know, French, you know, what I'm saying, oh, so, okay. you, know, you know, unknown. It's, you know, it's a clever little pun in French. So it I literally see. means unknown in French. Um, okay. I believe that he was, you know, very aware. He's very aware of the effects that he's trying to create and the, that and the viewpoint that he's putting forth. I don't know, like, it's hard to tell, though, with Vance, whether his, the viewpoints uh, that are presented in the stories are in any way related to what he actually thinks. Some some character, some some writers are much more obvious. Lovecraft yeah. is much more obvious. Yeah. Like, okay, this is what we think. Or Howard, right? Jack Vance has that level of irony where you're a little hard to tell. 
Although my understanding is we read more Jack Vance is that he does believe the world is very, um, he has a very cynical worldview and it's transactional. And we, we've talked about that when we had Sean McCoy on previously um, uh, it, talking about the same series. So, but again, I did quite enjoy it. I didn't remember the plot until I read it this time. I'm not sure if I'll read it again in five years, if I remember the plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I actually, you know, I, I adore Jack Vance. And I would say from this project, Jack Vance and Michael Moorcock have been my two favorite authors that I've been exposed to from the Appendix N. But I will say of the five Jack Vance stories I've read, this has been my least favorite of the five. Um, I, I, I thought it was kind of forgettable. Um, I feel like the first of the Demon Prince's book, The Star King, we had a really fascinating villain in Malagate. And mm-hmm. um, Coker, Coker Hocus. It's Coker, just nothing. Hocus. Yeah, there's there's not anything to him. And, and like, I get that that's kind of maybe the point, but like, that's not a good enough explanation for me to like have a villain that doesn't really have a lot for me to like really sink my teeth into, you know? And like, they kind of speak to it in the title. And I can't decide if Vance is being aware or not, given the era in which he wrote, I kind of think not, but it's like, well, you mentioned that he's too much, he's two dimensional. He's just, you know, he wants his revenge and that's it. And it kind of brings to mind, who is the killing machine? Is it this monster that cuts people in half? Is it Gerson who's going around whatever? Or is it, is it Heckus? And it, does that mean that these men are limited to being nothing more than a killing machine? And is that I'm Jack Vance and I'm Mr. Toxic Masculinity because I'm from the age distant past and it's good to be a killing machine or is that saying you know the, that's all these people really are it's just killing right. machines and they right. should be treated as objects of pity right I, I lean a little bit towards your your second interpretation but i think that obviously embedded in that era of the 1960s that um it's probably not either or it's probably like even if you believe in the latter latter it's still probably like 2080 <laughs> you know well, and this is also these are questions that um, that even the protagonist himself asks. And I get, or maybe he doesn't ask; he kind of states, you know. But because on page one sixteen of my edition, you know, um, Alus of um, uh, Iphigenia says, like, I can't understand cruelty, killing, hate. You were almost as frightening as Cocorhecus. And then he mm. kind of explains what happened, like why he's doing this, and then says, I knew that I would one by one kill the five men who had conducted the raid. This has been my life. I have no other. I am not evil. I am beyond good and evil, like the killing machine Hoker Heckus built. You know, so he also kind of like makes this comparison himself. And then in the very beginning, too, like Jack Vance has um, or has Gerson being hired to do an assassination. And he's like, but I need to know why I'm doing this. So Jack Vance is kind of introducing him as this like principled um, assassin. And then we've got our main character saying, I am beyond good and evil, which is like both kind of like super, super um, kind of haughty. I don't know what the word, (laughs) pompous. Um, But also I think kind of uh, some insight into what this person sees himself as. Right. Do you think he said it in a grand What? Well, obviously, you're reading it as if he said it in a grandiose way. I wonder if he said it in a more matter-of-fact, almost... Like, I'm neither good nor evil. Like, Whether he's he's the agent from Firefly. Right. Like, Mal, right. I will never live in that world. My job is just to create that world. Right. Or whether he's Ozymandias from The Watchmen. Right. Mm, okay. Right, right. Um, you know, some kind of existential despair, like I am beyond good and evil here, right? I mean, in this case, on page 200 of The Trade, which is where he started thinking about this, he goes... Um, would the role of nemesis have become such an ingrained element of his nature that never could he draw back, never could he know of evil men without taking their lives? 
It was all too possible, and sadly the impetus would not come from indignation or moral outrage, but from reflex, a passionless reaction. And the only satisfaction to be derived would be that of fulfilling a minor physiological need, such as belching or scratching an itch. So that's, mm. that's tragic, you know, but, yeah. you know, and at the societal level, you know, let alone the individual level. So Sure. <laughs> and Paige, I also don't want to um, kind of roll past your comment about the sexism of this piece either. I think it's important that we talk about and look at these things. Sure. And I agree with you. Like, this was also something that I was picking up on while reading it. I feel like of the appendix and authors, Jack Vance is definitely in the um, less problematic category than a oh lot of the gosh, authors that yes. I've read. Yeah. Oh, my uh, gosh. Like, <laughs> Lovecraft, who I, yes. I really like their work, super asshole. Like. Yeah. Just big maximum problems. power yeah. asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally, totally. Moorcock? Oh my goodness. Like, oh, Moorcock. Hey. Oh, I love Moorcock. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, I, I love Moorcock too, but super problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but super for me, it's problematic. like, in this, in this particular story, you know, the one female character we have, like, we can say she's been, object- but she's literally an object in this story mm-hmm. that yeah. just kind of, she's even the one who's like passing herself around too. Like even like, so like she has like very little agency. She has very little purpose. Um, there's the whole she's thing. She's literally something for men to fight over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Into and self. Yeah. There's this whole thing about like, oh, well, if she's worth this much money, she must be an extraordinary beauty. And he's like looking around at all the women who are at the interchange being like, oh, she's probably not pretty enough. Oh, no, not her. She's not quite pretty enough either. And then we've got the whole scene with like the rape tent. And then we've got the thing where like right? she, where he gets her in the end and she's like, I guess I'm your slave. You know, it's just like it's it's. It's a bummer. It made me want to vomit. It really did make me want to vomit. A real bummer that like the only characters that do anything interesting in and so far this has been my experience with all of Jack Vance. I've not seen yet. No, that's not true. Because in Dying Earth, Tiseus and Tisane do some really fascinating stuff. Um, I was going to say, I've not seen any f- female protagonists who do interesting things in Jack Vance stories yet, but that's not true. And and it's it's somewhat of a product of its time. Right. Because Jack Vance was a cis hetero white guy writing fiction for cis hetero white guys right Mm -hmm. and and so like there's no treatment of people of color that is worth any mention Uh, he didn't even describe a lot of his people uh as far as their appearance very well Well, and if it is worth a mention it's probably worth a mention in the other direction because we've got the We've got the maroon-skinned savages. Yeah. Um, um, sometimes their skin is described as maroon, and other times it's described as kidney-colored. Uh, but they're the savages. Sure. And then we have the um, we have the normal folks who are the the pale-skinned people who live who live not far from there. Um, so like it's not it's not again it's like it's not terrible, but like it's it's something that's worth as a contemporary reader being aware of right. so that that's not the kind of stuff that we are taking with us into our gaming. Because right. um, I, I feel like when we read these things, we get great examples of the things to do and great examples of the things not to do. Right. And, and the trick is, if you're, if you're dealing with, you know, Joan Q. Gamer, who only has so many hours in her life to read media, like mm-hmm. that. Sadly, we can't all just read books all the time because, mm-hmm. boy, that would be fabulous for me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so she only has so many hours of her life that she's going to spend reading books. How could you possibly convince her to read this mm-hmm. rather than Earthsea? S- 
Earthsea or or anything written past you know 2010. Yeah, right. Hunger Games. Yeah, uh, sure. Like, like, would you would you tell someone with a limited amount of reading time that this is worth their time more than those? I don't. I know. would not, but I would tell somebody with a limited amount of um, reading time to read The Dying Earth. I, you know, I enjoyed yeah. Dying Earth much more than I enjoyed this book. Right. Um, I probably wouldn't pick this series unless I specifically knew that they there was something they liked, like revenge mm-hmm. stories, um, that kind of thing. I want to uh, tug at two threads, though. Um, the uh, You mentioned race. I would definitely, reading this, read just Kurth Gerson as coded as, you know, as you say, cishet white male. Um, yeah. But... I don't think that race, um, remember he's got all these weird, this is like this post, uh, post human diaspora, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing actually coding any of the other people. I mean, yes, these barbarians are maroon, but there's nothing coding all these other human races out there as necessarily being anything resembling any of the human races that are, in fact, they make a point of saying like they evolve on these planets, right. resembling any of the human phenotypes that are on our, or coded as any of the human races that are on our planet now. And there's this whole fashion of people just toning their skins in completely outrageous ways, mm-hmm. like going forward. So it could be anybody under that skin tone, right? And so that just seems to be a purely um, cosmetic thing. Now, that's not necessarily – we live in a – we do not yet live in a post-racial society or post-racial world. So that's not necessarily a thing that's – I'm going to say it's a thing of merit, but I just think it's an interesting thing to think about. So I mean, to me, is- the bigger failure – is not so much uh, dealing with issues of at least um, human phenotype, but the issue of um, sex roles. Because sure. again, if it's four thousand or however many years in the you know future, why aren't there a planet of I don't know heavy gravity planet of like women warriors or you know why isn't the institute equally well represented by you know um, sort of really aesthetic women philosophers, right? Or even one. Or even one, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, we'll, leave, we'll leave aside issues of, of, of uh, you know, non-binary, trans, uh, LGBTQ, because that really wasn't really sort of the language yet of 1965, right? Correct. I mean, well, there, there are characters who are depicted as gay, but, you know, the, the whole understanding of what we know about that yeah. uh, was not in the mass consciousness. But certainly the role of women is something that, at least since the end of World War II... Oh, yeah. was coming up more and more in people's we minds. We were talking about women and yeah. people of other races and yeah. their role in American society in the 1960s. Absolutely. Absolutely, right? So again, yeah. I, I, you know, so that I think, but I do think that the depiction of, of sex and gender is a, is a bigger failing than a depiction of race in this particular book. The, the thing is, though, as a counterpoint, uh, and this is something uh, that has been a thing in Adventurers League, for instance, and many other products, where an NPC is their skin tone or appearance is not described. People assume whiteness. People assume whiteness. Even people of color frequently assume whiteness Mm -hmm. because the author was probably white and that's what the author views as so normal you don't even have to comment on. Absolutely. And, you know, I would say that Hoy, for the most part with this world, I agree with you that um, that maybe the issue of race is, is less important in, in kind of the overall galaxy of this of this place. But specifically, when we are on Thamber... Right, the Maroon Barbarians. We've got the Maroon Barbarians. And then when he leaves the Maroon Barbarians and he meets the other folks on page 141 of my book, he says, they were an ordinary-seeming folk, fair-skinned with dark hair. Mm-hmm. Ordinary seeming folk. Right. That normalizes exactly. That normalizes. Yeah. Now, does that 
ordinary seeming folk in Kurth's Gerson's point of view, or which then again is our viewpoint point of view, right? Character. Yeah, I would imagine so, which right. then also seems to say that ordinary seeming for his experience in the galaxy potentially is fair skinned. Right. right. Uh, who knows? But it's 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 right. not a huge thing, and it is not something that comes up constantly throughout the no. story. Right. But it's something worth mentioning well, at the very no. least. And another expansion on that. Remember when they're trying to pick all their menus at the prison planet? Uh, the uh, kidnapping thing, and they have the the, the cuisines. And oh, he's yes. like he's like cuisine A, which was like uh, West West Earth, therefore meaning probably Europe and North America, and one third of the Oikumini, which is the sort of galactic community. So that's like the normal community. That's, that's the normal baseline food for. So that's also another baked in assumption. Yeah. Mm. Right. But it's also but since Vance is points that out, he may also be being again slightly ironic. He was not completely. Um, untraveled i mean he was a merchant sure. seaman he you know was in the pacific during world war ii and other things like that so he was he was reasonably cosmopolitan but again still whatever level of assumptions that he had or his level of comfort dealing with stuff um hard to know i don't know you know he yeah. might have been he might have been woke for 1965 right for all we know but uh, you know it's not a big battle that it's worth fighting I, in my mind in you know I, I definitely agree that this is far more dated than the dying earth because the dying earth is so far in the future that it does not relate to anything that happens now. Although there's obviously some horrible things that happen to, you know, women and other people in there. But this is theoretically extension of our mid-century uh, civilization, right? Yeah. You know, the assumptions that are here, there's manila folders, right? There's, there's objects that were recognizable to people in the mid-20th century. But, right? but on the other hand, they had video phones. They had video phones. Yeah. So... Hello, iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> also, I loved that the air cars had transparent bubble domes. It yeah. was so Jetsons. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that was that was an upgrade, right? Because his original one didn't even have a didn't even have a dome. Yeah. And it was, he bought the yacht and he got an upgrade. So <laughs> <laughs> totally. Now, um, Paige, I'm curious. Um, or actually, I have this question for both of you. Um, was the, was was there any character who um, really kind of stood out for you as an interesting character in this, or no? I really like Jack Vance's world building. Yeah. So well, let's, let's talk about that then. So um, what about how, how successful was the world building in this? So I think it's pretty interesting that we're looking at a galactic society. So my first run into one of those was probably Star Wars. Because mm-hmm. boy, howdy, Star Wars rocked my world as a kid. Um and so we had an idea of what galactic society was like. And so this is a person who is also taking that step to say, what does humanity look like once we've hit the stars? And I commend mm. him for that. Mm. Uh, he's come up with a pretty interesting um, universe and how it's run in the human diaspora. I, I give him credit for that. And each chapter begins with this like little thing mm-hmm. that kind of gives you insight into the world. Did you find those were interesting and or useful or were they kind of or wh- what did you think of those? I thought they were flavorful. They're, they're actually kind of some of my favorite parts of the book because yeah. they, they I'm allowed to kind of remove myself from the plot and see the world and the world is what I like. Mm-hmm. What did you think of those, Hoy? Were those were those successful for you? Uh, I always like the epigraphs because sometimes they're in jokes, sometimes they expand, mm-hmm. sometimes they make you read the whole next chapter, wondering if there's any direct relation to what's going on. Um, and I think uh, Vance is actually kind of clever because very rarely is there any direct relation to what goes on to, in the chapter, right? And also, I think Vance operates at a couple of philosophical levels. Um, you know, I think there's a certain streak of libertarianism in him. Um, I don't know if that's small L or big L. Um, hopefully, not the latter. <laughs> you know. Um, 
but balancing that out against the idea of a galactic civilization that, that does have institutions that has norms to a certain extent, right? And where those norms are enforced and where those norms are not enforced, there is this idea of a beyond, right? Which is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but even in the beyond, they have these, they have a, a single institution, which is the, the D Weaseling Corp, right? Yeah. Which is to, <laughs> right? I enjoy all that. I think that from, uh, uh, from the, the standpoint of being able to sketch uh, a society or setting very, very quickly and efficiently, I think Jack Vance is unmatched in terms of the, mm, you know. No, I would put um, Alan Dean Foster. There we go. I think Alan Dean Foster. Oh, okay. Just well, I'm certain saying within the context of uh, Appendix Sand. But yes, Alan Dean Foster with the Ice Rigger series and a bunch of the other ones is, is really true. Sentence to Prism. Yeah. Uh, like, but, that, that was one where you built an entire galactic society in a very short span of book. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would definitely... Uh, put him back on the list and he was the uh, uh for, for everyone else he was also the original uh wrote the original novelization of star wars so he did oh and, okay yep. that is that is in fact how i discovered it <laughs> right and uh, i believe the alien and aliens novelizations also so yeah. he's, he's like oh, the premier the premier like film novelization writer and also i believe a uh amateur uh zoologist also he wrote some pretty interesting books about yeah. uh, dangerous dangerous creatures and uh, you can tell that from well anyhow Al- yeah alan dean foster not the same right. <laughs> um but I'm sorry. Uh, societies and settings. Um, character he's not as always as interested in, and I definitely agree with. And and, and in this case, I think it's deliberate. But now Jack Vance is Gary Gygax's favorite author. Period. Sure. And Jack Vance is listed in the appendix N as Jack Vance, Eyes of the Overworld, The Dying Earth, at all. So read those two books, and then read everything else he wrote. Uh, is basically what Gary Gygax is saying. While you are reading. The Killing Machine. Did anything about it feel particularly? Um, did it, did you did it, did you glean any insight from early gaming from reading this? Did you see any kind of game design baked into this? I feel like I didn't see too much of that here, but I don't know if either of you saw any of that really. Not particularly. No. No. I saw it, I saw it much more in Dying Earth. Much more in Dying Earth. Of course, yeah. It's 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 all over the place in the Dying Earth. So what I what I'm instead curious about then is is there anything that you encountered that you thought was really cool that you would like to steal from this and potentially incorporate into a future game somehow? I like the kidnapping exchange. I I continue to think that that is very cool. It seems like it would belong like in the Marvel universe. Like you have nowhere. You have the Collector, right. and then you have this this galactic kidnapping exchange. Which, you know, Loki's in a cell somewhere in the bottom of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, I think definitely the most memorable set piece. But I, I think, um, you know, there's a number of things there. I mean, you could certainly take some of the organizations that are in there. The, galact- the, the kidnapping exchange is both an organization and as a locale, I think sure. it is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I think this IPCC, sort of like this basically sort of freelance cop cop thing that you know send out people out to the the beyond and then the counterpart the d weaseling core yeah. i think that's a good framework if you want to place characters in there because it's just organized enough but it's also freelance enough to allow your characters some leeway if you're if you're doing something like that and they could still have a fantasy equivalent too i mean again um D is really at its root or at least D as conceived by gagax at its root is is not really medieval it's really the the real underlying mythology of that is is the western right i mean yeah. the trappings are, are medieval but you know keep beyond the uh, keep on the borderlands all that that's western yeah you know and this, this is not to say it's not problematic it is problematic but going out into quote unquote the wilderness you know and, and that interaction line between wilderness and civilization is always fascinating um it is problematic i know you know um I don't have 
that much insight onto how indigenous people think about this, but it clearly is a problem for them. <laughs> so, right. um, and, and rightfully. So. The the thing about the IPCC and the deweaseling and even the kidnapping exchange, yeah. to me, that felt shadow runny because mm, it's sure. corporations, you know, it's all yeah. for money. It's very transactional, yeah. et, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. I like that. Right. Uh, the Institute could also be a Wizards Guild. So I think that's an interesting sure. um, organization there as well. So, I th- again, this all hinges all back onto the world building, I guess, aspect of Vance. So. It does, because also the thing that I loved the most that I would most like to steal is also a world building element. I loved in the little um, intro to chapter 11, where he's talking about this um, uh, Zakere, this place that you can visit that's got all these different perfumes. And the, depending on what kind of perfume you're wearing and what kind of combination of scents you're wearing, they can mean lots of things. They can be used to stupefy a noisy child, to celebrate a murder, to do all these different things. So it's really important that you're very, very aware and careful of what kind of scents you choose to wear. And I feel like that would be a really fun thing to throw onto some like random city in your D&D world where like suddenly like there's this whole like strange like scent based etiquette that like is very difficult to grok. And there's a lot of chance that things can go horribly wrong with that. I thought that was a really fun idea that you could go far with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I hadn't picked up on that as particular gym, but now that you remind me of it, that is entirely true. Right. Or even just a perfumer's guild, right? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, 4A. Right. That is always one of the uh, the hilarious elements of Vance's work. Right? Is that some norm? You know, uh, the the traveling protagonist you know, comes to some location and violates some norm or just enough that people get all um, riled up about it. But then they have, then it gets that whole transactional element. And as Sean McCoy was mentioning and in the book club was mentioning, there's always some extended scene of haggling over something, whether it's, you know, someone's life or, or something as simple as, you know, uh, you know, the price of like, a, you know, a cup of coffee, right? But <laughs> always has something like that going on. Um, so to also, you know, Sometimes we like to sort of bypass those um, interactions in our gaming to get to like the real high adventure part of it. But I think there's, uh, with the right group and the right players, I think those sort of more mundane things can also be kind of fun to, to play out. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was really fun too is at one point when Gerson is undercover as Howard Wall, somebody's asking Howard Wall, like, so have you gone into the beyond? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm much too orthodox and unadventurous. <laughs> and like the way he says that is clearly like nobody who really hadn't done this would say it that way. That's clearly from the perspective of somebody who thinks that this is a really fun thing to do. So like it, it, it really like beautifully underlined for me um, how you can, um, as a GM, lie badly from an NPC's perspective. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> it's it's important to keep in mind how they really view something um, when they are making their lies and make it so that the players might be able to pick up on this. Like, give them clues that you can work with, and that's one way you can do that, is by having the word choice, if, if you're able to do it on the fly or even think of it in advance, like, have the word choice be things that people be like, huh, why would they have chosen those sets of words for how they're describing this? That makes it feel a little off. That's great. That brings me up a point. Uh, so, Paige, uh, D&D 5th Edition has yep. a perception slash inspiration mechanic, right? That's right, which AD&D, the original 1st Edition AD&D. Sure. And, um, 
in these situations, especially in this particular scenario that Jeff has just played out, would you use the actual mechanic or would you be tempted to more role play it or some hybrid of the situation where you would role play it first and then force the role at that point? What's your... You know, I, I, end, I end up kind of playing that by, by the seat of my pants because mm-hmm. sometimes it's better to do the role first so that it, you know if you just absolutely screwed up on the role... You have now got the privilege of role-playing a super screw-up, and it's going to be funny, and the whole table's going to laugh, and that's that's just fun. Um, some I usually do that when it's not super important, and mm-hmm. a screw-up can be more like fun than a true setback. But when, you know, when it starts getting important, it's role-play first, and then make the role, but the role-play will determine advantage-disadvantage. It will, as a DM, I will make the dc go up or down mm-hmm. depending mm-hmm. on the role plan. that makes sense um because obviously sometimes the the tendency now especially with some maybe less experienced gamers is just go straight to the role and, and then not you know maybe very briefly like okay well the guy's clearly lying but not necessarily explain the yeah. whole context around that you know and that that was a big hang up in fourth edition so fourth edition introduced the skill challenge i freaking love the skill challenge we have been doing skill challenges in every single edition of D&D. We still do them today, we just don't call them skill challenges. Mm-hmm. Fourth edition codified that, gave it an experience point mechanic, gave it you have to make four successes before four failures, or blah, 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 blah. And people hated it. Freaking loathed it. Because the DM would be like, alright, everybody make a diplomacy roll, now make a thieves tool roll, now make a, an athletics roll. And they're like, roll, roll, roll. 17, 20, 19. Okay, well, you pass, and, this, and people hate it, and they had every reason to. Mm-hmm. But when you just do it like you're playing D&D, where you role-play back and forth, it's like, well, you know, we're going to tell the king that blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, make a deception roll. And then we're going to show off our prowess. Well, make me an intimidation check. <laughs> um, when done right, they really sing. And when done wrong, you just want to punch your DM. That's right, what right. I say when, about that. when done wrong, it just feels like it's just like, okay, I should just get a rolling machine here. Like, yeah. <laughs> I get that some people really hate, you know, having a social mechanics, but I think there's a place for them because I think oh, yeah. that we are not all equally skilled in all things. And so having a social mechanic allows the person who is not or does not think of themselves as naturally charismatic to sort of ease into it by saying, but my character is very charismatic sure. and, and sort of. They might be able to sketch it out. They might not be able to say those silver, you know, silver tongued words, but say, "Oh but, yeah." You know, so I think there's a, a placement, but they still have to say, not just say, "I make my, you know, fast talk roll." They have to at least exactly. make some effort towards it. And, exactly. You know, like I don't want somebody just saying, "Okay, I want to make a seduction roll so that I can get past that." Right. And it's like, okay, well, what does that even mean? Like, tell me what your character's doing. Right. And yes. then. And because like I, I'm in a weekly D and D game, but it's not really any edition. It's just kind of we're rolling a D twenty and whatever. Um, but for me, it's like you know, in a social in a social interaction, your character is telling me what's happening. I'm deciding in my head, okay, what is the likelihood this is going to succeed based on how they're role playing this? And then I have you roll, and if it works, it works, and if it didn't, it didn't. Right. Like that. That's how I like to resolve it, and it's it's kind of a combination of the two. But Paige, I would love to ask you a question. So in this story, in The Killing Machine, we have Tharber, which is a planet with like wizards and witches and knights and dragons and all that stuff. It's 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 planet D&D. Sure. Now, in your vision of D&D, like let's say even for like feats and fables, would it be possible that a 
spaceship would land on the planet and you discover that your planet is one of many in like an intergalactic federation? Or have you just changed the game too much by introducing something like that? So I played a lot of D&D in the 80s. Like that's when I was a teenager. They were very form- formative, impressionable years. Spelljammer. Uh-huh. Mm. Spelljammer in the whole second edition renaissance. That was totally a thing. I uh-huh. do enjoy me some Spelljammer. Okay. Uh, it has to be used with very careful touch because there's a lot of players that get their their pants in a wad when when you put peanut butter in their chocolate. And I might be mistaken, but if I recall, Spelljammer, like your spa- spaceship still kind of looked like kind of like galleys. Just kind Depen- of like... Depended on the ship. Okay. And you were kind of going from like Greyhawk to the Forgotten Realms. Like, sure. In my mind, it wasn't really like like true like rocket ships going to like a super science planet. Correct. Correct. Um, how would you feel about that that level of um, something happening in your D and D world? Is that too much chocolate in your in your peanut butter, or vice versa? So if I'm gonna put that kind of chocolate in my peanut butter, I prefer just to go to Shadowrun or the Dresden Files role playing game or okay. something like that. Um, because D&D doesn't do science fiction mechanics very well. Mm. Okay. Now, let's say you wanted to run a game where it is kind of a planet-hopping, Kill Bill style. Sure. I'm going to destroy all five of these demon princes, and each demon prince is like the leader of their own crazy gang. What game system would you like to use for something like that? So, obviously, Fate would work, because Fate works for everything. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with it, it is a a highly flexible, customizable, generic system that is built on a very simple die-rolling mechanic, and it's beautiful. It's just a great game system. I'm really fond of the Gumshoe game system, Mm, which is Trail Trail of Cthulhu kind of stuff, Uh, and Knight's Black Agents and a bunch of games that I love. Um. So that could also be flexed to accommodate it. Okay. Uh, Monster of the Week is a whole lot of fun. If you're looking okay. for something super low impact, that's easy to have all these flavorful titles that kind of make stuff go. I mean, if I wanted to get super crunchy on it, I guess I'd, I mean, GURPS. GURPS does yeah. all the yep. things. Yep. Yeah, GURPS uh, does all the things. Right. That's the word that of- gets you banned from uh, Twitter to it. Hey, ha- that would be better if you did it with GURPS. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Tor kind of... <laughs> kind of does all the things. Right, right. What I don't know Torg. What actually is Torg? I know I've Googled it before, but I've already forgotten it. So uh, my brief understanding is a bunch of like infinite realities that kind of overlap each other and and they sort of collapse. And was that White Wolf? Was that Stephen Jackson? No, Steve I think Jackson? it was West End or something no, like that. I don't West End or Mayfair. Okay. I can't remember, but it was okay. Pre- predates uh, sort of White um, Wolf. Yeah. Star Wars Saga System also does a pretty good integration of flat out magic and uh and shooty things as well oh you know and how would you how successful would something like this be as a star wars adventure you could totally do this as star wars adventure Mm -hmm. like if you took this same plot elements yeah like the dude the five guys kidnapping exchange the planet with the witches on it like you could do everything in this in star wars and it would be fantastic Right. Yeah, like I feel like that might be the winning answer right, right. there. I would like, like yeah. a D6 star, yeah, West End D6 Star Wars or something. West like End Games D6 is great too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just do it like just kind of reduce the Jedi mythology. And they might have force powers, but at a very low level, you know. 
Yep. Um, Which is why I like Saga, because you kind of play... So I didn't feel like the West End D6 Star Wars game balanced Jedi bullshit mm-hmm. with everybody else as That's well true. as Saga does. Mm-hmm. But they're both fine systems. Right, both right. fine systems. Um, I definitely would throw in a vote for GURPS, but that's the, that's the inevitable answer. <laughs> I, say, yeah. fate, I think I've mentioned GURPS is always an easy answer right. because, I mean, yeah. It, yeah. GURPS and Fate. Yeah. And I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of the other one that I really like that's generic. Tristat? No. Not Savage, um, not Savage Worlds. Yes, yeah, Savage Worlds. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Fate, Savage Worlds, GURPS. Like, they're all designed to just kind of be whatever you need them to be. Right, right. And uh, you had mentioned Gumshoe. I believe there is a guy in Reach RPG from Pelgrain, which is there specifically is. Jack Vance. I believe that he does use some of the same mechanisms as Gumshoe, but I don't want to yeah. swear to it. Um, but it does, it does reward. Um, it does have a mechanism for rewarding like Vancean pronouncements, like "I yeah. am the killing machine," you know, that yeah. kind of stuff like that. So, um, Gumshoe is so flexible. It's such a good system. Yeah, such I very much system. enjoy that it, it, because it, it's designed to really give people the spotlight at the right moment. Right, which I think is pretty cool. Um, yeah, and since Robin Laws wrote Guy in Reach, maybe we should get him on for the third. Yeah, yeah. Um, any yeah, any Jack Vance. He also wrote the uh, Dying Earth role playing game back when Pelgrim did that back in the day as well. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we we need to reach out to Mister Laws here yeah, and yeah. see if he's interested in joining. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's somebody I really look up to. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's good, one good of the. Person. I mean, there was that year where there was that stretch of years where nobody could get in any gold any right because they were always up for it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No. Well, it's funny because, like, you know, the 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 year that um, I'm on another podcast called Spellbird and we won the silver any, um, but it was a year that they were nominated, so we already knew we weren't getting a gold. Right. Um, but then last year, the Appendix and Book Club was uh, nominated for an any, and they weren't. So I'm just like, oh man, like the gold's actually up for grabs. But I, I knew we, I we knew it was Asian represents year because that was a, they they did a lot of great work yeah, last sure. year and it was really Absolutely. it was really their year. So we're now in any losing podcast in the words of Andrew Sternick. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I now have one any I'm on one any award winning podcast and one any award losing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's an honor to be not exactly. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. 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 And there's 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 a man who does not like his chocolate and his peanut butter right there. Andrew S. <laughs> Andrew Sternick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does not like that overlap. I, I no, love it. I love I, I overlapping the stuff. Yeah. I've always said my favorite movies involve talking animals, laser pistols, and sword fights. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you right. can get all three of them in the same movie, I'm super in. Welcome right. to Star yeah. Wars. Right, right. Yeah, for me, I like I like my D&D to look a lot more like He-Man than Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair. Right. And I think that's where like DCC excels, although you know I haven't played it since... You know, mm-hmm. I think COVID. Yes, uh, to me, I, I know a lot of people play it online. I, to me, it, that one is the game that I really feel like I want to be at the table and gesticulate sure. wildly. Right? Yeah, Paige. How? What are you? Where are you at with like a lot of kind of the OSR game systems? Does this have an appeal to you? Not so much. So the no. last time I played three point five, I was DMing a Sheldomore Valley Meta Regional at a con up in North Carolina. I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of the ones in High Point, North Carolina. And so I'm DMing an APL twenty adventure. And I have six. I'm APL- sorry. What is, what is APL twenty? Oh, average party level. So it's a, a, a living Greyhawk adventure built for twentieth level characters. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> not a, not a big deal. I I run plenty of them. Wow. And uh, my bad guy was like a twentieth level cleric who had like a twentieth level incubus uh, or uh, uh, a sorceress demon girlfriend. Uh, and then, like, a ghoul, 
dirge chanter, the corpse chanter, dirge singer, uh, <laughs> MC, and then like it's whole- good to be able to both corpse corpse chant and dirge sing. Right, those right. are good skills to have together. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the three point five nerds know exactly what I'm talking about. And then like a whole chorus line of drowned behind them. And uh, so the party walks in and cast the spell from 3.5, and I can't remember the name, that gives everybody in your party, like, a plus 22 initiative. So they win initiative. And then, like, a greater dispel, a reading dispel, and then some kind of metamagic bullshit-empowered dispel go off. So this cleric bad guy has, like, literally 30 buffs on him. So I'm like, all right, let's start rolling. I can do this. We can do this all day. And so I figured out which buffs he lost. And uh, I said, all right, go to lunch. Uh, here's a fiver. Get me something too. Um, I just need a few minutes to recalculate all of his stats, and then we'll be ready to, to have this fight. And I, I did it, and it was fine. And we, you know, the good guys won, whatever. But I'm like, how is that fun? Yeah. <laughs> like, if I have to take 10 minutes to recalculate their stats <laughs> between initiative and the first person actually moving, like, how is this fun? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I hear you. Now, when you think of the OSR, do you do you think that that's kind of stuff that happens in the OSR then? Is that... Uh, you know, I, OSR to me is always going to be the original Keep on the Borderlands. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I have stayed clear of the OSR community because I'm just not playing those games. I believe uh-huh. fifth edition is a better better evolution of the game than all the rest because I can find more people to play with me. Oh, yeah, um, sure. In the OSR community... By that, 100%. There's sure, no doubt that the... The hugest benefit that 5th edition has is it has the most players. Yeah. Um, and the OSR community is kind of full of assholes. Not really interested in going there. I feel like that's true of any community. Because I feel like the OSR community has a whole lot of assholes, but also a lot of really amazing people, too. They do. They do have some definitely amazing people. I think it's the flag, how the flags get flown, right? Because 5th edition is so large that it's hard to say that there's a bad 5th fifth, fifth edition community. The OSR is small enough no, that it's easy to No, there are definitely... Bad like, fifth they're that yeah, yeah. They're, they're bad eggs, but I'm saying, but no one says like the fifth edition community as far as well, I should say no one. Yeah. It's harder to say the fifth edition community is is blah 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 bad or put one label on it. Sure. Whereas the OSR is small enough that it's easy to sort of um you and know. we have enough bad eggs in the OSR community that have gotten big names for being bad eggs. Exactly. Exactly. Plus the OSR community trends towards older, whiter, straighter. True. I mean, there's, there's, I a, there's that's definitely an element, and there is, there's a really interesting sort of DIY element in the community, yeah. but they probably are not as visible at the moment. And they're fighting for it, but they're not as visible yeah. for the moment. Yeah. You know, that's, that's it. And, and there, let me, let me, like, I was the the one of the mods, an admin actually of a hundred and fifty hundred and fifty thousand person Facebook group for 5th edition D&D for four years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and I stepped down to write some more, which was which was a great idea because yeah. I've had, like, so much to write since then. Good for you. Um, and boy, howdy are there assholes in there. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, people, it's like, what made you think you wanted to type those words? Yeah. <laughs> right, um, right. But with the 5th edition community, if one of those shows up, people jump on them like green on beans. Like yeah. they get just shouted down and stomped into the grass. That's good. Um, and I don't, I don't know if there's as much shouting and stomping to the grass in the OSR. Community. Not, not you know. I mean, there's, it's, it's not as uh, balanced enough to, I mean, or maybe it's yeah. too equally balanced to allow for that. You know, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's, it's pretty equally balanced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like the OSR 
in that sense is a lot more like the uh, a snapshot of overall American pop, pop politics. Right. I feel like you have just as many um, on the far right as you do on the far left in the OSR, where I feel like that's not necessarily true in 5e. I feel like if yeah. 5e and, and then you get to indie gaming, which is, I think, far more left, which yep. is great. I love that about indie gaming. Uh, there's a lot of weird infighting there, too, but that's not our thing. There either. is. Yeah, there's yeah. weird infighting in any community, right. though. But um, but the 5e community trends towards younger, yeah. queerer, yes. and and more melanated. Right. Like, yes. just right. flat right. out. Right. Right. I agree 100%. Awesome. So we are running out of time. Paige, is, do you have any like final thoughts about the killing machine that we didn't get a chance to get to? So while I, I did not particularly enjoy the book, uh, I do recognize and I do want to emphasize, even though some of these works are acutely problematic, it's good to have a history on where your hobby came from. And I would certainly recommend reading some of Jack Vance's works to anyone who is interested in writing for D&D. Mm-hmm. Like, do your homework. You just simply have to. Perfect. And Paige, if people want to find out more about Feats and Fables or any of the stuff that you're doing for D&D Adventures League, how can they do that? So you can find me on Twitter. I am at Paige Lightman, and that's spelled L-E-I-T-M-A-N. You can also find us on Twitch TV on Monday nights from 8 to 10 Eastern Time at Feats and Fables. We would love to have you there. Talk to you in chat. Awesome. And Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. Uh, if you want to give us some feedback, do drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Um, please do rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice if you uh, want to give us some support. It does help people find us there, whether it's on uh, Google Play or iTunes. Um, and if we're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Uh, yes, our Patreon. So before our episodes, we get to sit down and chat with some of our patrons in our patron book club. And today we were joined by Brandon Cruz, Dan Alexander and Adam Styers. We had a great conversation with those three. Those are also recorded and available and able to be listened to on our Patreon. So if you decide to join and support us that way, you would both be able to join us on those book clubs and listen to previous book clubs. We would also like to give a shout out to a handful of our patrons. Thank you to Robert Poyton, Robbie Fioto, Yorkus Rex, David J. Hotstream, Matt Hildebrand, Vixter, James Hansen, Matt Richards, Jared Logan, and by Grinstow. Thank you all so much for your support. And our next two episodes will be on Fletcher Pratt's Invaders from Rigel and Philip Jose Farmer's The Lava Light World. Paige, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for offering me a chance to get into some literature that I would not have chosen otherwise. It's good. To, no, it's good to see it. It's good for good for your brain to read more books. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor, Paige. <laughs> All right, everyone. We're, we're, we're done here. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.